Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of An Outside Opinion. This is a series of interviews I will conduct about Ukraine in a global context. My name is Oleg Rybachuk and I am the host of the Centers of United Actions Initiative. My guests are international experts, diplomats and researchers and they represent states with successful democracies and more important working system of checks and balances. They know a lot about Ukraine and have extensive expertise in global politics, security and the work of democratic institutions. Today, my guest is Gerald Knaus, founder and chairman of European Stability Initiative, a Berlin-based think tank which works with future of European enlargement and who is the author of the award-winning Spiegel bestseller what borders do we need? Hi, Gerald. Welcome to the show. And my first question would be about just recent summit, Ukraine-EU, very symbolic, which took place in Ukraine just a few days ago, February 2023. If we would summarize political result of that summit, it says that Ukraine may be able to start um, accession talks, providing it meets all necessary requirements. To what extent do you agree with this? To what extent is it realistic? Hello, Oleg. Thanks for having me on your uh, program. Uh, I have, as you know, I've been following uh, the enlargement process of the European Union with my colleagues now for more than 25 years. And so what we've learned is that the key for a successful transformative enlargement program are two things a committed political leadership backed by a public in the accession country that believes in the European vision. I think you have that in Ukraine today. But secondly, a process that is designed that it can lead to a meaningful result because of the efforts of politicians and civil society in the applicant country. And that we have not had in the last 15 years, and we've seen it in the Western Balkans or in Turkey, countries that started accession talks, but then it turned into a trap. They are not advancing. They are not transforming. They are not coming closer to joining. So I think the big challenge for this year for Ukraine is that it's different. Uh, Europe needs Ukraine to be rebuilt as a strong democracy. And for this, Ukraine needs to have a credible perspective. Opening accession talks as soon as possible is a sign that is encouraging, but it's not enough. And what you really need, and I, I hope that the next few weeks and the remaining months of the Swedish presidency will see such a breakthrough is also a clear sign from the EU that Ukraine's accession process will be different from the one of the Balkans. And that there will be a goal that Ukrainians can reach through their own efforts within the near future. And that is not there yet. That is not there yet. Yeah, you have enormous experience in observing the peculiarities of EU expansion. Do you believe that everything now depends on Ukraine and Ukraine only? I mean, for beginning of this 
uh, accession negotiations. Or there could be external factors. There could be some, some you mentioned Balkans, for example. Before we got this candidacy status, uh, we heard that some very important players have been saying, come on, it's not justified. There are Balkan countries who are in queue for many, many years. This kind of external factors may delay our accession, or you believe they are not so relevant? I fear, in fact, I think I know that they are very relevant because every step on the accession road needs to be taken unanimously. And while Ukraine has very strong supporters among member states, the Baltic states, Poland, the Czech Republic, and many others, there is a strong sense in some member states, and they are saying it publicly, France, Germany, the Netherlands, that the union itself needs to change before it can welcome any more members. And that is a problem because that does not depend on Ukrainians. For the union to change, you need again unanimity, treaty change, which might and might not happen in the next five or 10 years. So I think what we need now, what Ukrainians need now, is a very strong signal. And I, I think if the Ukrainian leadership and civil society ask for it now, there is a chance of getting it because people realize how important it is for Europe. A very strong signal that if Ukrainians manage to meet the conditions to join the EU as assessed objectively by the European Commission, that then, even if the union is not yet reformed and not yet ready for full accession, Ukrainians immediately get access to all the four freedoms and the single market so that investors know now in 2023 that Ukrainians, if they reform, will be fully part of the EU single market, will have full access to the four freedoms goods, people, capital, services, and that in their calculations, this is not uncertain and depends not on EU vetoes at the last moment by one or other member states. Judicial reforms, uh, it is critical for Ukraine. And since we got independence, the dependence of our legal system, judicial system, on uh, practically presidents, mostly office, was uh, obvious. and. Whoever started, whatever president started reforms, it was never successful. But I clearly understand it is essential. To what extent do you believe EU shares this view? Because I know I started my career in the National Bank. I know if EU wants something, they can do it. EU has enormous expertise in building effective institutions. To what extent do you believe EU would be persistent with making sure that Ukraine get this judicial reform? The key issue is that European Union politicians see Ukraine as fully part of the EU in the near future, in which case they will insist on an independent judicial system. The problem is if they play the same game with Ukraine that was played with Turkey or Serbia or North Macedonia, where they know that for the next five, 10 years, Ukraine will not be a member, then on the one hand, they will not put the same emphasis 
on vital judicial reform. And on the other hand, they will not have the leverage. But if they set out the goal, you know, the whole negotiations to join the EU of Romania lasted uh, five years, less than five years. Croatia, five and a half years, from start of talks to the end of talks. So if Ukraine can do it in four years to meet the conditions, then it is clear that it needs to start now also to reform its judiciary, to have an independent judiciary, because in the European Union, recent challenges between the European Court, the Commission and Poland, where a Minister of Justice has tried to create control over the courts, have shown everyone in Brussels how important it is that any member of the EU has independent courts, that uh, the judiciary is not controlled by the executive. So if there is a realistic, credible goal everyone believes in that is near, then at the same time, judicial reform will become crucial with all the efforts of the European Union focused on ensuring that Ukraine has an independent judicial system because the EU's system of governance, uni unity through law enforced by national courts, depends on it. In your opinion, Russian war in Ukraine, did it remove some obstacles on our path to EU or did it address certain phobias, for example, like migration issue? What role, how war influenced on our uh, integration process, in your opinion? The, the events in the last year, the, the tragic uh, fate of uh, Putin's and Russia's aggression against Ukraine have completely transformed relations between uh, not just European institutions and Ukraine, but the European public and Ukraine. Uh, the European public sees Ukraine now suddenly as a country that is not only sharing but fighting for the same values as the rest of Europe. Uh, the image of Ukraine has transformed itself. I mean, I've lived in Ukraine in 1993-94, long time ago, so I've always had friends there. I've gone back to Ukraine many times, but most Europeans uh, did not have a clear sense of just how big, how important, and how uh, strategically vital as a partner Ukraine could be. Now they see it. And, and don't forget that there are millions of Ukrainians, uh, more than 4.9 million Ukrainians applied for temporary protection to get protection in Europe. These are all people, women, children, uh, that now have European friends, European colleagues, and they are all telling the story of Ukraine. So Ukraine is no longer just a, a place on the map or a country that you know little about. It's a, it's a symbol uh, of democratic uh, values that are defended against an aggressor. And this gives politicians in Europe that argue that we need Ukraine as a full partner to make Europe stronger, not as a, not as a sacrifice, not as a gift, but to make Europe stronger, that gives them the public backing that they need. And one year ago, unfortunately, this was not here, but today uh, there is a, a lot more understanding of why Ukraine matters to Europe. War and reforms, how they interact. There are many believers that war is not the best time for reforms. Do you believe that reforms should go on, not wait 
till war is over and then start reforming? It's an incredibly difficult thing when, and I, I cannot, I am not living now in Kiev. I talk to friends there. I can just imagine, but you all experience it, how difficult it is to concentrate on a big agenda that has taken over governments that wanted to join at the same time as fighting to defend your territory uh, and 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 uh, fighting the destruction of your infrastructure but at the same time my sense is from talking to ukrainian friends that it's very important that ukrainians know they are not just fighting to defend themselves against an attack on their very nation and state that uh, putin wants to destroy they are also fighting for a better future and that better future is why it was so visionary of the Ukrainian government to apply for membership right after the beginning of the war to signal that if Ukraine is to be rebuilt, it will be rebuilt as an EU member state and that there is a future no longer in the limbo, in the gray zone between a European Union and the Russian attempts to recreate an empire, but firmly linked to the European Union. So uh, I think any effort that Ukrainians have already made by filling out the questions of the commission, by pushing for a, a legislative agenda uh, to show the, the rest of Europe that they want to be members, uh, pays off double. It shows the Europeans that Ukraine is serious, but it also gives the Ukrainians uh, a sense that this is a realistic future. And of course, this is why Europe and the European institutions need to respond. It is impressive really impressive it's almost miracle for me the scale of western unity and solidarity with ukraine confronting putin's aggression and also supporting ukraine uh, eu and nato integration putin was counting on the fact that west would not be able to keep this solidarity for a certain time specifically he hoped that in winter it will just disintegrate what real threats do you see for this Western solidarity? How long you believe it can stay? And are there any dangers for this solidarity? I agree with you. I've been impressed too. Remember, I mean, we all remember early 2022, there were still quite a few European former prime ministers, Chancellor Schröder, uh, Prime Minister Fillon from France, prime ministers or chancellors from Austria, from Italy, that worked for Russian state or Putin-linked companies. I mean, the Russian strategy of trying to bribe, buy, influence, infiltrate European institutions seemed very successful. And yet today, uh, one, almost one year after the outbreak of the war, uh, Europeans are more united than ever. The, the blackmail with Russian guests has not changed German policy. Germany is now supplying battle tanks, which, uh, a year ago, uh, even the most hawkish German politicians, remember then Foreign Minister Baerbock, said Germany cannot send weapons. Well, now uh, Germany is sending a lot of weapons. And the debate here in town is how to make this effort sustainable. Uh, and it's not just Germany. It, it's, it's really a, a very remarkable unity. But honestly, I think that has a lot to do with the way Ukrainians have behaved and have talked about their own story. You know, from your president to the many impressive civil society representatives that have traveled through Europe, that have talked about Ukraine, uh, from the media reports on 
uh, how Ukraine has has resisted. Um, it's been these stories that have helped friends of Ukraine keep this alliance together. And I see many dangers. Uh, Europeans need to be able to deal with the refugee issue in a way that doesn't help the far right. So Ukrainian refugees, if another million or two million have to flee, that they will be accommodated. But I think it's possible with the right policy. Europeans will need to make themselves permanently independent of Russian energy. But we've seen this winter, there are options to do that. Uh, and finally, Europeans need to have a very, very clear vision. And that's the key point about the continent's future. The future of Europe is as a continent of democracies integrated, linked together, making war between them and among them unthinkable and having a unity of a, a defense alliance so that they cannot be attacked from outside. That's the vision. And that vision depends on Ukraine winning the war. And that vision depends on a credible EU and uh, NATO security integration strategy. Now about the economy. I've been told many times at the beginning that uh, economic factor is very important when you talk about EU enlargement. There are very powerful um, stakeholders involved. The most popular was the phrase which I heard from my German uh, ambassador friend who said that we have to convince French farmers that joining uh, EU would not be a threat to them. Uh, what advantages do you see, economic advantages, do you see from this next uh, enlargement? Because there was a long pause, and for a long many years we heard that, oh, EU is tired, there is fatigue of enlargement. There, now it's not only Ukraine, some Balkan countries, Moldova, probably Georgia would be on the way. Economically, what do you believe EU will benefit from this uh, this wave of enlargement. It's striking. Germany exports more today to Poland and the Czech Republic than to China. Right? So the Poland and the Czech Republic are a, a China in Europe for Germany. Uh, Ukraine, if it just develops the way you, Romania has developed the last 15, 20 years, you know, that could be another China in Europe. So the, the economic benefits of having uh, such a strong economy with people who you see it in Warsaw, you see it in Germany. Many of them find jobs very quickly. They've, many of them have been entrepreneurs. Many of them speak English. Uh, Ukraine brings a lot, and it brings a lot more than what people used to talk about. You know, they used to talk traditionally, you know, as an agricultural economy with a lot of agricultural potential. Yes, that's all true, but the biggest potential uh, is, is, is the people, is, is the capacity to innovate, to create uh, businesses for the 21st century. And having Ukraine and indeed the other countries of, of Southeast Europe, part of the EU single market makes the single market stronger, more resilient. And if you look for Europe as a power that influences things in the world, then clearly uh, this is a vision that is realistic and, and concrete to bring all European democracies together. Uh, eventually, I, I am increasingly certain that one day, uh, we don't know how long it will take, the United Kingdom will want to come back to the single market. Uh, we will see what will happen in Turkey when it goes back to a democratic path um, and how it will be linked to the single market. But I think the idea of an area in the world of European countries with no barriers between themselves, making joint decisions how to regulate this space, um, 
And Ukraine is, of course, not only a big country, but it brings a lot of assets. So it's not a gift to offer Ukraine a membership perspective and to bring it closer. It's an advantage. Democracy and war. During wartime, you know that uh, people, citizens, voluntarily uh, give away certain freedoms and rights and try not to criticize our government sharply uh, in the area of their rights, of their freedoms. But uh, the, the biggest challenge is what will be after. What do you believe? What are the biggest challenges for democracies or even threats for democracy during the war? I mean, as you say, democracy is a state of, I mean, war is a state of emergency. Democracies uh, don't like states of emergencies. In democracies, normally you want to have uh, as much freedom as is possible for, for, for citizens to speak, to criticize, to act. And in a state of emergency, freedoms are restricted. So it's very important that civil society remains alive. Uh, we know that this is possible. It happened in other countries. Look at the United Kingdom when it fought its war, the Second World War, when it was attacked. Uh, after the end of the war, not only was democracy preserved, you had a, a free change in, in the government through elections uh, immediately after the, after the war because it remained a democracy. And the war hero, Churchill, um, uh, he stepped down, he then came back later. He again was elected. So you had changes in government, you had freedom of the media, you had civil society preserve itself throughout six years of war. I think my sense is there's broad unity around the geostrategic direction of the country going towards Europe. But otherwise, you know, this is a country that will need continued uh, political uh, pluralism, fights, debates. It's good that Ukraine remains and is, opposite to Russia, a member of the Council of Europe. I think we have an interest in the immediate term now to strengthen the Council of Europe, the European Court of Human Rights, the Committee for Prevention of Torture. This is the club for democracies to defend standards. Um, but the strongest guarantee that the Ukraine that emerges after the war will become a vibrant and remains a vibrant democracy is, is EU accession. Uh, because that system of mutually holding each other to account, look at, look at Poland. There's a lot of tension around the rule of law in Poland today. And yet there is still not a single political prisoner in Poland. You know, and I think if Poland would not be a member of the EU, you might have had a takeover of the judiciary by the current minister of justice, but he has not yet succeeded. So in a democratic union of democracies controlling each other, uh, it's much easier for civil society to preserve uh, pluralism. You've been watching situation in Ukraine for so many years, and you know that one of the biggest, if not the biggest uh, problem here is the governance or the separation of different uh, powers in Ukraine. President, parliament, government, courts. What do you believe how we can achieve real, not the declarative separation? Because many Ukrainian presidents have been traditionally saying that, no, no, we are not going to extend our powers, but our analysis proves that since we got independence, every Ukrainian president was grabbing more and more 
unconstitutional uh, powers uh, under their own umbrella. And this is very tempting, specifically now when we have very popular president's office. How do you believe we can make sure, because if this is not happening, if you don't have uh, separation, checks and balances, it's very problematic to be effective democracy. And at least in EU, I don't see any are the countries where there is no clearly cut separation of powers? A hundred percent. It's very clear. The record of the last 30 years is very clear. In Europe, presidential systems, systems with too much power in the executive, whether it's Russia or Azerbaijan or Turkey or Belarus or, you know, these systems are not developing well. It's also when it comes to big countries, systems with local government that is strong or strengthened, that have been the most robust. Uh, I mean, the strength of German democracy after World War II was that this separation of powers was imposed on Germany by the Allies. You know, a federal system, a system of strong independent courts, strong independent media. In Ukraine, the good thing is it's already the, 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 the reforms of the last eight years, from what I can see, have already created a much more resilient system than outsiders understood. You know, the fact that you had successes in decentralization, the fact that you have institutions that don't collapse when they are attacked uh, shows what has been achieved. Uh, but the key, of course, is, is security. I mean, the key to have a, a democracy with pluralism is to remove the threat of aggression. Uh, one of the secrets of European success uh, in, in Western Europe after World War II has been the American security guarantee that made it possible to face off with democratic, internal democratic threats and strengthen pluralism. And I think this is another argument why it's in the interest of Ukrainian democracy and of European democracies uh, to, to really make sure that when this war ends, Ukrainians and Ukraine is really as secure through whatever guarantees or NATO membership as the Baltic states or Romania or, or well, very soon Finland or the rest of Europe. Uh, because that's security is what you need to really have a thriving pluralistic system. Um, that and a, and a vibrant civil society, which I think Ukraine has today. What are the challenges for EU within EU? The case of Hungary, where members of EU is brought into totalitarianism, or, uh, uh, clearly authoritarianism. Uh, how EU can respond to this? EU now is responding with euro, financially cutting supply, uh, cutting support, and applying political pressure. Hungary is a member. Uh, there are countries like Serbia who are candidates, but also who are sending very disturbing signals in reality not sharing certain basic principles of EU. How, what do you believe? What kind of effective tools EU may have to avoid these challenges in the future, specifically after enlargement with new members? This is a decisive moment in European history. 2023, and not just because of the war in Ukraine, but also because of the internal battles, which are fortunately peaceful battles, battles that only involve money and court decisions, but they are essential for the future of the European project. 
battles between the European institutions, the Commission, the European Court, the Parliament on the one hand, and uh, the attempts to limit democracy and the rule of law uh, and ignore court judgments of the European Court in Poland and Hungary. So these battles have never been fought in this way in the history of the EU. The, the stakes are enormous. I am confident that the Commission and the European Court have the tools to win these battles. The, the fines that we are talking about are in the billions. I mean, we are really talking about massive amounts of money that are at stake. But the most important battlefield is public opinion in Poland and Hungary. Because in the end, what the union is saying is you want to be, majorities want to stay in the union in, in all those countries for many good reasons. But there are rules, there are red lines that cannot be crossed. And the European Court of Justice, the European Commission, and the European Parliament will defend those rules. And so the union is not that has never been an empire. The European Union does not have soldiers or police that it can send from the center to any member state. Any member state can leave, as we saw with the United Kingdom. What holds the union together is the interest to be in the union, which majorities in democracies must see, on the one hand, and common standards on the other hand. And the common standards need to be defended. So if this year the commission wins its battles for the rule of law in Poland and for implementing court judgments in Hungary, the whole union is safer and enlargement to new members is much more secure. We are almost approaching second year of the war, but EU is already prepared and declares that it is willing to uh, pay an active role in reconstruction of Ukraine. Uh, and uh, EU is talking about critical infrastructure for the beginning, but my question is, uh, Ukrainians do not want simply to rebuild the old mode of the economy. We don't want to have this this structure of our economy, which we inherited from the Soviet Union. We don't want to have new oligarchs uh, with uh, rebuilt uh, huge enterprises, uh, which are quite often not so much playing crucial role for the country's economic uh, advantage. How do you see how this reconstruction should look like as a process? So. It is transparent, it is efficient, it helps Ukraine to build the country of their dream. How it should look like, in your opinion, that platform? Well, I mean, two things. It's very clear that the amount of money that will be needed to rebuild Ukraine, uh, it will not be transfers from public sources. A lot of it has to come from the private sector. And right. the private sector will invest in a country like Ukraine if it feels that it's secure and if it feels that it is tied to the single market of the EU. So look at what happened to Romania. Per capita GDP in Romania 20 years ago was 25% of the EU's average per capita GDP. Now it's 70% of the EU's average per capita GDP. A, a completely new economy has emerged with entrepreneurs creating new businesses. So the EU has funded infrastructure, uh, that's useful, that's important. Ukraine will need those fundings. But the core motor of growth has been the confidence that you belong to the biggest market in the world. And that is why a signal 
that Ukraine will have the standards, the inspection services, the institutions to be fully part of the single market with no barriers so that investors in Europe can put part of the production to Ukraine, that Ukrainian entrepreneurs can invest in Ukraine uh, from the bottom up, feeling secure about their investment. This is the single most important thing the EU needs to give Ukraine. So a European perspective is not just politically uh, an important thing, it is the precondition for economic success. And just compare Romania and Moldova, which 20, 30 years ago were, you know, both were very poor. Now they've separated completely in terms of their development. One was inside the single market, the other one was outside. From experience of your country, do you have any uh, knowledge uh, how Austria was rebuilt after World War II or it's out of, of, of your expertise? Any lessons? Austria and indeed Germany too, they were uh, devastated. They were full of refugees. A lot of, uh, a quarter of, of the population uh, in Germany were Germans displaced from the East. Um, the country was divided. All the institutions had to be rebuilt. So on the surface, it looked like an impossible situation for rapid economic growth. But what made it possible was that in the 1940s and early 50s, German and European leaders, strongly supported by the United States, managed to create a framework of real economic and strategic and military security. NATO was created and Germany joined in 55. Uh, the European uh, coal and steel community was created, and then the European economic community in 57. Uh, there was a framework to remove barriers between European economies, um, indeed the beginning of European integration. And, and this made it possible for not just Germany or Austria, uh, which of course joined later, but was fully part of the Marshall Plan and of the, of the European Free Trade Area. This made it possible for them to develop uh, as a whole West European bloc. Italy had glorious development. France developed enormously. Uh, this was the key. And there we owe a lot to the wisdom of some of these politicians and to the United States, which from the start was using its aid money to push for the integration into a bigger economic area. And so I think that's a lesson for Ukraine. Uh, when you rebuild Ukraine after this war, it should not only be rebuilt as an EU member state, it should be rebuilt as part of the biggest single market in the world. Uh, and that will lay the foundation and could lie, lay the create the foundation for a similar economic growth miracle as the one that we've seen in Western Europe uh, after, after the 1950s. As usual, it was great talking to you. Thank to all our listeners, and I also recommend you to visit centerua.org to learn more about us. I also invite you to subscribe to the center's YouTube channel so you can never miss our show. And see you in the next episode. It will be also very interesting.